Good morning, all. This is John Halsman, and welcome to our latest Around the World in 20 Minutes, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. And I'm sometimes in the midst of chaos. I think it's good to take a step back and look at where we actually are. Look at the deeper forces that are driving things. And this is why so many of uh, our competitors get things so wrong. They get caught up in the 24-7 news cycle. They get caught up in the moment and they don't see the wider flows and patterns of history um, as they express themselves through these crises and events. And so I have a big meeting tomorrow for our firm where we, we're going to, through our good friends Credit Agricole, going to talk to them and a, a number of their clients, a number of very high-level hedge funds and banks in New York, about the state of the world. And so as a test run, and it will be, I, I have to stress, entirely different from what I say in the meeting, this is just me picking up the guitar and playing. This is me doing one of my jazz riffs uh, to start thinking about where we are. Um, and so this is in no way duplicative or any of what I'm going to say, or none of this necessarily will be anything that I say. But I thought I'd pick up my guitar this morning and simply play and hope I get Here Comes the Sun in honor of George Harrison and Philip Norman's new biography of him, which I'm sure will be great. And we're going to look at three areas. First, U.S. politics, uh, then U.S. fiscal and monetary policy, and then last but not least, the three geopolitical brush fires crises out there, Russia, Ukraine, the Middle East, and China, Taiwan. And I'm going to do this in as provocative and broad brush away as possible. I'm less looking for answers to the questions that I'm the captain of our ship of our community and political risk on very stormy seas. And I'm trying to plot, plot out the, lot, the latitude and the longitude, where we are on the map, because only then can we begin to look at what's likely to happen and then what ought to happen, which are the two questions that we should all be asking all the time. So let's start with U.S. politics. Um, as most of you know, our firm has very early on said that Donald Trump, um, acts of God aside, um, is going to be the 45th president of the United States, that like Grover Cleveland, who was president in non-consecutive terms, I think Trump will is likely to win uh, the U.S. political race. Uh, why do I think that? The only question that matters in what we do, why? Well, think of it this way. I think we're at peak Biden. Let's think less about Trump, who's a known quantity. Of all the people who don't need to invest in name recognition for a campaign, I would say Donald Trump is pretty much top of that list. But it's more about Joe Biden um, that tells us why Trump is likely to win, because I would argue that right now we're at peak Biden, that this is as good as it's going to get for President Biden. Um, and as I've said before, I check the presidential approval numbers daily. It's like a thermometer of the health of a presidency. And if a president is at 60% or over, he's in FDR, Ronald Reagan territory, and he can pretty much tell Congress what to do, and given his popularity, they will do it. If a president is below 40%, he's trying to squelch rumors that he's dead, trying to prove, as Bill Clinton said, after the 1994 midterm shellacking, I'm still relevant. Joe Biden is languishing at about 41%, and that number has been there in the basement for a very long time. It's worse if you look at what we call in the business the crosstabs. If you look at the specific issue areas that Joe Biden is in trouble on, they are unlikely to change. That he is seen as the economy that we're in with cost of living crisis, 
uh, Joe Biden owns that, that people link his name to the spending that came out of COVID, where the federal government spent money like a drunken sailor. And then we got a huge spike in inflation. And even if they get that under control, Biden is blamed for that spike and that fear. And nothing's going to change that because the economy is not suddenly going to get a whole lot better. The U.S. might just avoid um, some form of recession, uh, but he's not going to get credit. Rather, this is a debit and his numbers are in the low 30s on this lower than his overall number. Biden, the, the, the phrase that, that, that's most likely to be described to Biden is he's too old, he's muddling, he's dunderheaded, he's senile. You pick your word that he's cognitively challenged. It's not about his age. Um, again, everyone's had parents. This will happen to us all that you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. And then you're very much not fine. And we're seeing Biden tumble there. And so people are very concerned that can he serve out a hole for for your another term when he's into his mid 80s and nothing's going to make that any better. Uh, the foreign policy scene, as we're going to come to, isn't getting any better, that his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, and one of the dumbest things I've said for a while, though foreign affairs obligingly let him correct what he'd said, we should be held to our standards and not allowed to correct our mistakes. Uh, but fortunately, the hard copy version of foreign affairs came out ahead of them correcting the online, said the Middle East is more peaceful now than it's been in the last two decades. Obviously wrong. Um, and Biden is in the middle of three crises, uh, Taiwan, Middle East, Russia, Ukraine, that are unlikely to get any better in the next year or so. So no improvement on foreign affairs, no improvement on his age and cognitive abilities, no improvement on the economy. And so what does that leave us with? One other big problem, if this is peak Biden, and it's only going to get worse from here. And in polling, the average of Real Clear Politics polling has Donald Trump up uh, by 0.8 of a percent overall. But if you look at things like the Bloomberg poll of state-by-state -state polling among the uh, toss-up states, places like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, uh, Georgia, and Arizona, Trump is, a, is only behind in one of those states um, and is tied, I believe, in Michigan and is up everywhere else. He's up in Arizona. He's up in Georgia. He's up in North Carolina. And so if the election were held today, Donald Trump would electorally win. But it's very close. Why am I so confident that, barring an act of God in either way, that the, there will be a runoff between Biden and Trump and that Trump will win? Well, again, the Electoral College slightly favors him. But more importantly, um, I think the key fact is that there are going to be other people running for president, independent candidates, other than Trump and Biden. And this skews entirely. Trump's way. First, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Bobby Kennedy Jr., has announced he's going to run as an independent. There have been a whole lot of articles that saying, although he's a vaccine skeptic and he's against forever wars, that somehow Bobby Kennedy, the key here to getting this right is the last name, Kennedy, um, is going to pull more from Republicans than Democrats, even though he was at 14, 15 percent in the Democratic primary even as the Democratic Party, he rightly says, was cold-shouldering him, not giving him a fair chance. Certainly, I think that's true. But the idea that Bobby Kennedy is going to pull more from Republicans than Democrats is absolutely wishful thinking by the mainstream media, cheerleading for their boy, Joe Biden. If you actually look at the numbers of the polling out, it's inconclusive. In a Reuters poll, when you put the three of them together, Kennedy pulls from Biden by about two points. In other polls, which are smaller, 
Kennedy pulls from Trump. So at, at best for Biden, this is going to be a washout. For the, the idea that a guy named Robert Kennedy Jr. is going to pull more from Republicans is totally unproven statistically so far. What we do know is the no labels group with a whole lot of money and which skews to kind of center left Democrats is still talking about running a candidate next year. And they've qualified for a number of states to run, even though this will probably hurt Joe Biden. Their argument is if it's a Biden Trump election, an election that in Gallup polling nobody wants, if that's the outcome, they will run somebody. Undoubtedly, this will pull more from the Democrats and the Republicans and a whole bunch of Democratic pollsters are waving their arms up and down saying, don't do it unless you want to elect Donald Trump. And I believe them. And so this skews toward Trump, too. And then last but not least, Cornell West, the progressive candidate, used to be running as a Democrat, now running as an independent. He used to run for, again, the key is in the name, the Green Party. These are all Democratic voters. I, I defy you to find me a percentage of green voters that would vote for the Republicans. He has now moved to the left and said what every third party candidate does. There's no real difference between Biden and Trump. And so we're going to proceed. West is anywhere between three and five percent in the polling, not at zero, at three to five percent nationally. That's not insignificant. Bobby Kennedy, by the way, is at 14 percent, which at the, at the moment would make him the most potent third party candidate since Ross Perot. And then before that, you have to go back to people like George Wallace and Teddy Roosevelt with his bull moose party. So the Kennedy candidacy at 14 percent or so in a three way race is significant statistically. But so is the West candidacy of about 5 percent. And if you look at the West candidacy, um, these are all Democratic voters and worse for Biden because of his screwing up the Middle East, because of Jake Sullivan saying there are no problems here, there's nothing to see. And because of his now trying to thread the needle and stay with the Israelis while restraining them, well, this is the worst of, of all worlds in a political sense, not in a policy sense, but in a political sense, in that he is uh, alienating Muslim, the Muslim American community, 70% of whom voted for Biden. And critically, that like most groups, they're clustered in certain areas. And one of the areas they're clustered in is Minnesota, which is a, a blue state, um, which is tending blue, but but is, is also capable of voting for Republicans and Michigan, which is a toss up state. And so this is significant that the Muslim American community are deserting Biden because of his stance, not favoring a ceasefire in Gaza. And this is likely to cause him real trouble. Um, and because of this, and particularly in places like Minnesota and Michigan, which matter to him politically, uh, these people will either not vote or will vote for Cornell West. And so Cornell West already three to five percent of the poll. This is likely to be slightly augmented. Just think of this. In the 2020 election, 70,000 votes separated Trump from Biden in Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania and Michigan, the toss up states. A incredibly narrow margin separated the two candidates. Almost anything would change that outcome. Almost any one of these indices would change that outcome. If you accept that we're at peak Biden, one. If you accept that the third party candidates overwhelmingly, particularly Cornell West, also the no labels candidacy, and I suspect Bobby Kennedy too, to a lesser extent, all skew toward hurting Biden, three to 5% with an even election is an overwhelming victory 
for Trump, given these narrow margins. For all these very thought out reasons, look for Donald Trump to be the 45th president of the United States. And that's where we are. That's our first political risk prediction to come out of that. The second prediction, which relates to U.S. fiscal and monetary policy, there are a couple broad brush things that, that really merit saying. We've been saying this, and I want to give our economics team, who don't get enough credit, the macro guys, don't get enough credit here, because we're always talking about foreign policy crises. But they have laid, I think, very convincingly, through me um, and my involvement, but certainly they've helped generate these ideas. That's how we work. Um, we, we have in the office the Bolshevik principle of democratic centralism, that we fight like cats and dogs internally, and once I've reached a decision, then we all agree coming out the door on that policy and are unified. But you've got to have creative ferment internally in order to be creative and come up with new ideas. And they've really convinced me over these last couple of years, and we've been saying this now for a couple of years, that the era of globalization is over. That the days when the world was run, and this really worked from, say, the end of communism, 1991, up until COVID, so around 2020, so 1990 roughly to 2020, that for these 30 years, we lived in an age of globalization where free trade was the name of the game, where political risk pretty much didn't matter, it was a minor annoyance, and we're getting more things, more places, more quickly through economic rationality was the ultimate goal. I mean, if you think of something like Amazon, where I can pick up, you know, I can order today and it'll show up at my door by the afternoon, this really epitomizes this age where the free movement of goods, the most goods, the most quickly, and this led, of course, to the rise of China and other things, but that this era of globalization ran the world. And well, this is now well and truly over, that other things now do matter, that, that it was odd for all these years that I would go to meetings and talk to hedge fund leaders and bankers, and they all sounded like Marxists. They would say, the only real motive force in the world is economic. That's a, it amused me to hear this from bankers, that this was a, a Marxist idea, that having discovered one force of history, they neglected to follow through on all the others, on history, on culture, on psychology, on anthropology, on sociology. None of these other things mattered. Um, what mattered was economics and economics alone, which is a peculiarly Marxist idea. And that this is what they believed. Well, no more. Everybody sees that nobody cares if the Chinese, uh, in the old days, people would have said, who cares about if the Chinese have all the rare earths as long as they deliver them? Who cares? We now care intensely that our phones are utterly at the mercy of the Chinese doing some very nasty mining in China itself and that they can control our output of our phones, and we don't have any kind of counter source with which to secure our supply. Europeans used to say, who cares where our oil comes from? If, if the Russians are offering us the best deal, we're going to go with them. Uh, and when I would say things like, well, what about Norway? What about the Netherlands? What about fracking? They'd roll their eyes at me and say, we can handle the Russians. To put it mildly, Europeans have proven they cannot handle the Russians. And so other things now matter besides economics. And this is the end of an era. You have hedging about resources. You have people saying, yeah, we'll keep the, you know, we'll keep the chip supply with Taiwan, uh, but we're worried about Taiwan. So we're also going to have TSMC, the company that makes the majority of high-end chips in the world for computers. We're also going to build plants in Japan and in Arizona to hedge in case there's a problem in Taiwan. This isn't because it's economically rational, 
this is because it's geopolitically sustainable. So we're going to hedge. We're going to do regionalization, that it's better to buy products within your region rather than going further afield. I mean, if you look at the Germans, their whole model was cheap Russian gas. German, Germany makes high-end products, everything from chemicals, petrochemicals, through cars. They then sell to China. The problem with that model is the political risk of the inputs and the outputs. Better to do stuff in the European Union where you have very little political risk and, and you can sustain an economy through bad geopolitical times. That geopolitical risk in our new era, everyone finally realizes, actually matters in a fundamental way. So there's regionalization. There's hedging by building things, duplicating things that you're already getting from other people as you build up your national qualities like America is with Biden's CHIPS Act. That's what you're doing, that you have your own industrial policy, that you manufacture more in the country, even though that's less economically rational, is going to cost more, is going to have a higher rate of inflation. And you're going to friendshore. You're going, you're going to do things with people that you trust. The United States is main trading partners, and people don't know this, are Canada and Mexico through NAFTA+. Plus. And the reason for this is they're next door and they're allies, and we do an awful lot with them anyway. And so this makes a lot of sense, rather than buying something from our enemy, geostrategically China. And so all this is the breakdown of the old era of globalization. We're in an era where geostrategy matters, where things are going to cost more, where there's, it, where there's inflation more because it's less economically rational, but you're going to have more and more hedging, offshoring, friendshoring, regionalization. And that's the new era that we're moving toward. And then the other thing to say in terms of fiscal and monetary policy, is that we're in an age um, where the era of easy money, and this is also related to globalization, the era of easy money is over. The incredibly subterranean interest rates that we've had since Paul Volcker slayed inflation for Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, that, that's done with. And, and they've, they've let the, 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 the idiots at the central banks have let the genie out of the bottle, taken their eye off the ball, and to be fair to them, to some extent, out of COVID, they underestimated how quickly the global economy was going to bounce back. And I think that's an understandable mistake. But the Bank of England you know, here is the most guilty, but they all are. They were very slow to adjust. And so they let the inflation genie get out of the bottle. And so you're going to have higher inflation and higher interest rates than anybody's used to. Another thing you're going to have is the notion that because of these low interest rates, you can borrow money at close to nothing. Um, that's over. Everybody who locked in their mortgage rates during this period of time is breathing a sigh of relief. My friend Danny, my cab driver friend in London, my taxi driver that we've been working together for 20 years, locked in his mortgage rate. And I said, look, I think that's the best thing that you've ever done um, because now that's locked in and won't change. Anyone who has a variable rate that's floating, they're in trouble because it's going to be higher for longer than anybody thought. And this even goes down with these rates now to the bond yields that for the first time in a long time, the United States borrowing costs are going up. And this is going to affect political risk fundamentally, that if you can get 5% on the bond yield from the United States, that means that the United States borrowing money is no longer at zero. So the days of Nancy Pelosi saying in a drunken sailor way, put it on my tab, are over. When your tab has no interest, it's one thing to spend money like a drunken sailor. When it's 5%, it's another. And with the U.S. debt of over $33 trillion, that's right, with a T, trillion dollars, 
5% borrowing costs for American treasuries. Um, we now spend more on servicing the debt at the federal level than we do on defense spending. And more and more of this spending is going to crowd out doing other things in the West due to our very high indebtedness and our very, very high rates of interest relative to zero. And so this is going to be a factor that we're going to have to live with in the new era. This is another contour of the new era that has to be taken on board. So there's that. And then third, geopolitics. Um, where are we? Well, we've seen in the Russia-Ukraine war, we've seen, and this is, of course, I'm, I'm covering three major crises in 10 minutes. So by definition, this is going to be broad brush, but it's a place for us to begin thinking as a community. The first thing to say is the Russia-Ukraine war is, is, as we've said, and again, boy, we've had a good war. We, we got this right early and often. If you look back at our pieces for Conservative Home, you'll see that compared to Messrs. Bremer, Ferguson, et al., we've been on the money. And again, I have the naive revolutionary view. You should pick a political risk analyst based on his predictive record, which is why business is booming, thank God. And we've been really very on the ball about Russia, Ukraine, that it's in a stalemate, that what you see, what you see right now, um, Bakhmut was like Verdun. Um, you see counteroffensive after counteroffensive fail. The vaunted Ukrainian counteroffensive in the, in the summer amounted to nothing. And in fact, a little known fact that you won't hear from our cheerleading media is that Russia today has about 200 square, more, square miles of territory more than they did at the beginning of the year. That far from pushing them back, what you have is the Russians have actually taken a tiny bit more territory and the Ukrainians have not dented Russian advances. But the lines just aren't moving. And so there's that. And so the, because of this, outside influences and a stalemate matter more as they did in World War I, that with trench warfare, Outside influences matter more. In World War I, the two things that mattered that seemed countervailing, first the Russian Revolution, which knocked the Tsarist Russia out of the war, but then almost immediately, German unrestricted submarine warfare got the United States in the war. That proved in this knife's edge contest to be the dominant fact that the United States uh, tilted the balance in favor of Britain and France and Italy in the war against Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Turkey. And so you have that key moment. And with these factors in Ukraine, Russia is so fine, like World War I, with it really now in a stalemate that even the cheerleaders for Ukraine, who've been wrong about everything, um, and, 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 and boy, have they been wrong about everything, that they, they, they've wish cast, they've used wishful thinking, you know, the Andrew Miktas of the world, who's been wrong and confidently predicting constant Ukrainian victory, which just hasn't emerged. Phillips O'Brien at my old alma mater of St. Andrews, who's gone from being a, mil a military analyst to Ukrainian cheerleader, wrong about literally everything, and now says, we just should have done more. Exactly what the neocons said in Iraq, is though if we'd given more than $100 billion to Ukraine, incredibly, somehow that would have meant they've won, when the simple fact is the Russian population is five times that of the Ukrainians, and in a stalemate, the person with the biggest industrial base and the most people is likely to win over time. And then you add in the United States is getting tired of paying for everything. You have Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, very sensibly separating spending. The Biden people want to pretend like Neil Ferguson. Now, Ferguson, this is all one thing. World War III will lump all the spending together. And this was a magic trick using Israeli spending and Israeli suffering, as Senator J.D. Vance said, to get money for Ukraine. 
60 billion of the 106 billion were for Ukraine and his omnibus spending bill. That's where his heart is, is where your appropriation is. Um, we see that that's not going to happen. We see that Mike Johnson, the new speaker, said, no, 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 let's divide funding and let's just get the 14 billion for Israel over the over the line first and then we'll worry about the rest. He's making actual choices. And that's why the Ukrainian lobby are screaming so loudly, because anyone who's rational making choices between Ukraine uh, Taiwan and Israel, the, the ugly stepsister there is going to be Ukraine. It's by far the least important of the three. And so by separating this, it looks like Ukraine's days. And Zelensky, there's a great article in Time magazine saying that Zelensky's guys are saying we're in a stalemate and Zelensky's in d delusional as his supporters are, simply refuses to accept this reality. And this is going to cause trouble. So by all intents and purposes, Ukraine should make a deal now. And we're certainly in a stalemate. But uh, one last thing to say about the Russia-Ukraine war. Very, very interestingly, George Friedman echoes our firm. Now, I think George is a first-rate political risk analyst, as anybody who knows me knows, that geopolitical futures, a rival of ours, they do good work. Um, and George said, and we were also talking about it, and I think I, our guys will get mad at me. I think we were first, but pretty much at the same time. George Friedman and we said, Look at what Alexander Lukashenko is saying, who is the tin pot dictator of Belarus, who was kept in power after stealing an election and the protests that arose in Belarus simply by Russian power, that he's a satrap, stooge, uh, Robin to Vladimir Putin's Batman. And he said recently, he mused out loud this week, well, nobody's going to win the Russia-Ukraine war, and so it's time to negotiate, and both sides have to accept this unpalatable reality. He never would have said this, Lukashenko, unless this was approved by Putin. There's no way he would say this out loud, and certainly not for attribution, unless Putin had okayed it. Um, it's like Bahrain and UAE agreeing to some sort of deal with the Israelis without the Saudis being involved. It just wouldn't happen politically. And so we know that Putin okayed Lukashenko, in effect, setting up a trial balloon that there need to be some sort of real negotiation. So we're not there yet. We're not even near there yet in Russia, Ukraine, but they're the first tiny signs of a movement to some sort of precarious deal. Even if it's only an armistice that just, as in Korea, freezes things where on, on the military lines where they are when they stop fighting. Don't look for this happening this year, but about midway through next year, there may be movement toward this. They're the first tiny seeds, offshoots of grass that might amount to some sort of settlement. And we saw those this week. So I think that's an important point to make. Um, on the Middle East, I mean, we've covered this a ton and we will even more. We're going to do our next podcast on the political price. Again, Biden's paying for this, which I talked just a little bit about, but we will in a full podcast coming up. But three simple points to make. One, Hamas and Iran, and this is terrible to say, as we did in the last podcast, have already kind of won in that they've achieved their strategic goal. Because of the, of, of the terrible atrocities committed, uh, they have done a number of things. They've stopped in its tracks a deal, a formal deal, between the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Israel. And from an Iranian point of view, from Hezbollah point of view, from Hamas point of view, this is, this is mission accomplished. You've stopped all your enemies from formally diplomatically recognizing each other. you stopped your enemies from getting closer together. And that's exactly what you wanted to do, that the Saudis, aware of their own street, are in no position to strike a deal with Israel anytime soon. And, and 
the Palestinians in the guise of Hamas and to a lesser extent Hezbollah, uh, the Palestinian issue can't be gotten around as the Abraham Accords, I think, very creatively tried to do at the moment. So this is all, unfortunately, a strategic win for Iran and Hamas. Secondly, as I mentioned, Mike Johnson has, through Israel, began to separate issues. Nobody doubts that Israel has a special relationship with the United States and that this needs to be dealt with in terms of an immediate aid package um, without American troops being involved, which nobody wants, thank God. Uh, but to help with Iron Dome, uh, to help give them artillery shells that we'd rather to give them to Israel than to Ukraine. And so you see the beginning of tensions where choices are having to be made. And these crises need to be viewed not like Niall Ferguson is all one. That's the neocon fantasy that got us into trouble in Iraq, conflating somehow uh, a secular movement in the Ba'athists of Saddam with a religious movement, religious radicals under Osama bin Laden. Then instead, you should view these things separately. And Mike Johnson's doing that. And on the widening war front, um, as, I, as I suspected, there, despite a lot of tensions, there's no real movement, a lot of fire-breathing language, which is normal. There's no real movement between the, to, to wind the war. And I would argue, why would Iran want to wind the war if they can help it? Because they've already strategically achieved what they've wanted. So why would you wind the war if you didn't have to? And so there's that. And then the last point is China-Taiwan, the big one, uh, which is quietly going on. Um, we have elections coming up in Taiwan in January that it's likely that the DPP party, which are the ones who are more for an autonomous, if not fully independent, um, Taiwan, uh, are likely to win. Uh, they hold the presidency at the moment. Uh, their candidate, Donald uh, William Lay, is the front runner to be the president. And he said that in effect, Taiwan, he said the truth, in effect, Taiwan is already an independent country, but there's no need to declare independence and provoke a crisis. I think that's where most Taiwanese and most Americans are. And he is likely to win. And that means tensions will remain high because these people, after seeing what happened in Hong Kong, do not believe, to put it mildly, in, in China's offer of one country, two systems, when what we see is one country, one, one decision made by Xi Jinping as she crushed Hong Kong independence and autonomy, that they want no part of this. And so underlying all this, we are keeping our BDIs on Taiwan because with America so preoccupied with spending so high, uh, as Bridge Colby, my friend, points out, with the military defense industrial complex in America unable to keep up with demand, um, the, 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 te the tensions and the temptation for China to make a lunge toward Taiwan are certainly there. And so we're all keeping our beady eyes on that as we look around. Well, there you go. I did it in exactly 30 minutes, says the clock, that we looked at where we are, the world at the beginning of November 2023. Uh, huge changes in U.S. politics, U.S. fiscal and monetary policy, and geopolitics. But through the storms, as your, as your faithful captain will continue to plot compass points, come up with answers, and make our ship not only survive, but thrive in this very new era. Have a great day, and I'll give you another one on Friday where we look at the political costs Joe Biden is going to pay as a result of his mistakes over the Middle East. Take care, everybody. Again, please do subscribe, and please do give. We're only asking $70. We're now doing this almost around the clock while I do my day job with the firm. So please do make this worth our while enough that I can continue to barricade myself in my study and keep faith with our community, which is frankly the part of my job I love the most. Take care and uh, everybody have a great day.